Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So we are in week four of the story, and I hope you've been reading along. If you have not yet picked up your copy of the book, um, we are making it available to everyone. We want everybody to get a copy of the story. And what it is, is they've taken um, the Bible, taken all the chapter verses, markings out of it, and just it reads like a story. Um, It also kind of takes out some of the parts where people kind of get bogged down. Um, And you can just read through the story. And the whole idea of it is um, that this is the unfolding story of God. God's redemptive work in the world. And as we've been going through it, one of the things that's become more apparent is there are really two stories going on. There is the lower story, what happens in the lives of the individuals and families here on this earth. But there's also an upper story where God is unfolding his plan of redemption. And, and when you discover how your lower, lower story matches up with God's upper story, That point of intersection becomes a place at which you can join your story with his, and you become a part of what he is doing in this world. And so that's why we're going through this together. We want to understand this is our story. It really is. So far as we've seen it, the, the, the pattern pretty much goes like this. Human beings kind of make a mess of things, and God comes and does something redemptive. Anybody can relate to that story at all? I mean, that's pretty much the story. So far, that's what we've seen. Human beings make a mess of things, and God steps in and does something redemptive. And last week, we were looking at the story of Joseph and how one man chose to trust God through all of the circumstances of his life, no matter what was going on, no matter how long it lasted, his willingness to trust God no matter what actually became a part of God's saving not only of his family, but the whole nation of Egypt. And now we pick up the story some 400 years later. I know it was just a week for you, but it's been 400 years now. And the story picks up. Now we finish the book of Genesis. We're into the book of Exodus, and we're in chapter 1, if you want to follow there. And by the way, let me just say something. If this is your first time in church, or maybe your first time in a long, long time, and maybe you're feeling a little awkward or out of place, I just want you to know that we are all in the same boat, okay? We all have, we, every one of us here, we have our own struggles, we have our temptations, we have our insecurities, we have our doubts, and we believe that God has something to say with, to those aspects of our lives. And that's what we're going to discover this morning as we take up the book of Exodus. Now, if you're using your story the story book. Um, it's page 43. We're going to begin a chapter, uh, paragraph 2 there. If you're using your Bibles, it's Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. And this is the beginning of the Exodus story. A new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and harsh labor in brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor... The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And that's where they find themselves. 
See, the story of Exodus is a story of deliverance. It's a story of hope. It's a story of freedom. It's a story of redemption. And what I'd like to do this morning is to have you just stop for a moment, maybe close your eyes, and I'd like you to think about one area of your life in which you feel totally powerless. Totally helpless. Just take a few moments and just identify one area in your life that you feel totally powerless. It might be a habit or an addiction or a temptation. It might be a life situation. It might be some difficult circumstances or situations that you're facing right now. It might be a financial thing. It might be something to do with your career. It might have to do with a relationship or a marriage. But just one area in your life where right now you are feeling totally powerless. So I want you to think about that this morning. Because as we go through this story, we're going to discover there is a pattern there, is, there, is some, there are some principles here that will help you deal with your area of powerlessness. And, and by the way, if you are in recovery, if you've been a part of a 12-step program, you're going to recognize these as the first three steps because those three steps come directly out of Scripture. They are the pattern of God's redemption and transformation in everybody's life. So whatever area of powerlessness or hopelessness that you are feeling this morning, I want to give you some things. The first very first step is simply this. you got to acknowledge your own powerlessness. you got to come to grips with the fact that you're not going to be able to change this. This is out of your hands. See, the story begins with a group of people that started as a family and now have become actually a nation within a nation. But they don't have real identity. They don't really have a sense of nationhood because they've been enslaved. A new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. See, the way that they ended up here is that Joseph provided for his family, that God used him to bring wisdom to, to the Pharaoh to set up a place where they could store grain for the years of drought. And Joseph's family ends up in Egypt, and they're saved as they live there. But the family becomes a nation. And that's what's happened. A new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. We must deal shrewdly with them. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. The Israelites find themselves in a place where they are totally powerless. Their lives are dictated by their taskmasters. They have no sense of real identity. They have no sense of nationhood. They are totally powerless. What's happened is that as they have grown numerous, the Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, has gotten a little nervous about things because they're going to start outnumbering us pretty soon. If we don't enslave them now, we're going to lose total control of our own country. And so they put him in, and, and the people just keep multiplying. And so he actually, he commands the midwives that when a, when a male child is born, we've got to put an end to this race. When a male child is born, you kill him at birth. Of course, the midwives kind of balked at this whole idea. They came up with this really great excuse. They said, these Hebrew women, they are so fast at pumping out these babies, we can't get there in time to kill them. <laughs> Which, evidently, Pharaoh knew nothing about childbirth. But he decides, okay, then I'm going to do this. He commands his people, when you find a male young baby, you throw it into the Nile. We are going to eliminate this people. And that's the edict that goes out. And you probably know the story because one Levite woman 
has a child. His name is Moses. You've seen the movie. Watch the cartoon, okay? You've probably sung the songs. She puts him in this little bulrush basket that she lines the outside with tar so it will float and sets him into the Nile in a place where he would be protected and not heard his cries. What happens is Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and it ends up that she adopts Moses as her own. And to find a nursemaid, actually hires Moses' mother to be the nursemaid and help raise the kid. God is at work in all this. And finally, finally, these people, these Hebrew people now have a champion. He grows up in the halls of power. He, he is now in line to the throne of Egypt. Now we've got someone on the inside. Now we've got some power. Now we've got something. And Moses does that. He grows up in the very halls of power. He is educated by the best scholars. See, Egypt was the first superpower in human history. Long before the Romans, long before the Greeks, before the Assyrians, before the Babylonians, there was the nation of Egypt. And they were the seat of culture. They were the seat of academia. They were the first world superpower. And here is Moses growing up in the middle of that. He is getting the best education possible. He is going to the finest schools. He's enrolled in the most prestigious university. He is learning to read like an Egyptian. He's talking like an Egyptian. He learns to walk like an Egyptian. And for those of you who are pre-1980s, you don't get that one, okay? But he realizes at some point he's not an Egyptian, these are not his people. His people are enslaved. And he finds an opportunity. Actually, what happens is he is out one day and he sees one of the Egyptian taskmasters beating and abusing one of the Hebrew slaves and he can't take it anymore. And he takes matters into his own hands and he actually ends up killing the taskmaster, burying him in the sand and hoping nobody finds out. Of course, that doesn't work out very well. And by the way, that's kind of what we do when we find our ourselves in a place of powerlessness, we try to use whatever power we can to try and take care. We take things into our own hands and think, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to find a way out of this. In the same way it didn't work out for Moses, it's not going to work out for us. He ends up having to flee for his life. And you fast forward 40 years, and now it's a very, very different Moses. This is not the Moses that's living in the palace. This is not the Moses that is an heir to the throne. He has no power he has no palace. He's got nothing. He is living on the backside of the desert, and he has hit rock bottom. He is working for his father-in-law. <laughs> he can't even get his own job. And in fact, he's, 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 he's shepherd to his father-in-law's flock. He doesn't even have a herd of his own. He's got nothing. He has gone from hero to zero, and God has him right where he wants him. Because when he hits rock bottom, God appears to him in the form of a bush that's burning in the middle of the desert, but it's not consumed by the fire. And it's such a strange thing. He, he, he says he, he, he turns to the side to figure out what is this thing going on, and he hears the voice of God from this, from this bush, and it says, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. And he does. And he moves him forward, and God speaks to him. He says, you are going to go before Pharaoh and you are going to call my people out of their slavery and out of Egypt, which sets off a whole long discourse and argument that Moses has with God. 
which is not a very good thing to do because you're never going to win an argument with God. But he starts in. He starts in with this. He says, what, but God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? I can't do that. Don't you know my history here? Who am I? God says, I'm going to be with you. Said, but, but God, what if they don't believe me? Well, I'll give you some signs that you can kind of show them that I'm behind you. But, but God, but God, you know I am not an eloquent speaker. I flunked speech class, okay? I get all tongue-tied. I stammer. I stutter. I can't be your voice. God says, I'll provide your brother Aaron. He can be a voice for you. And he goes through all this list of, of, of arguments why he can't do it. And finally, he runs out of arguments, and he finally just says, God, please, just send somebody else. <laughs> God says, no, I'm sending you. In the middle of all that argument, Moses says, okay, so if I go, if I go before the Israelite leaders, and if I go before Pharaoh, who do I say sent me? In other words, who are you? Yeah, I know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that's 400 years ago. Who are you to me? And God gives him the most powerful thing. In fact, that is the first time in Scripture that God reveals himself with a name. And the name is this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to tell the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. That's not even good grammar. Okay, I know that's not good. But what God is saying is, listen, I am, and that's all you need. <laughs> I am who I am. I am that I am. You don't even need a name because I am. There is no other. I am. Am. And that leads to the second step. You got to first of all recognize your own powerlessness, but then you got to recognize God's power to deliver you. And that's what God is giving Moses. He's giving him a sense that there is a power greater than you. In fact, greater, greater than all other powers. Because the next thing that happens is a big power struggle. Moses goes down with Aaron down to Egypt, and they go before the Pharaoh, and they say to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Oh, let my people go. Yeah, no. And Pharaoh says, no. <laughs> wait, wait, wait a minute. You want me to let you take these people and get out of here. What's going to happen to all my free labor? Who's going to build my pyramid? Who's going to take care of my palace? Wait, who are you, nuts? What are you thinking? And by the way, this was something God had prepared Moses for. Because God told him long ahead of time, he said, Though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring you out. I will bring out my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And through a series of plagues, God makes his power known. It becomes, a, it becomes a battle of the wills. It becomes a real power struggle. And each one of the plagues are designed to reveal the weakness in the Egyptian gods. See, the Egyptians had a whole pantheon of gods. In fact, there's a picture up here. Here's just a few of them. 
Okay? They had all kinds of gods. They worshipped they worshipped um, Isis, who was the mother god, and it was believed that she was the source of the Nile River, which was the source of life to them. God says, you worship Isis? You worship the, 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 the river Nile? Okay, we'll take that away. And he turns the whole river into blood. And it stank, it says. And their source of water and life, sound familiar, was dried up. So, so Pharaoh relents, and he says, okay, 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 okay. I'll let you go. I'll let you go. Just take care of the Nile River for us. And Moses comes before God. God changes it. Everything's back to normal. And Pharaoh says, ah, change my mind. So God says, okay, here's another plague. In fact, you might notice one of those up there. I think it's a one, two, three, four, fifth from the left. Has a face of a frog. That's Heket. Heket was... was actually had the face of a frog. God says, you love frogs? You want to worship frogs? I'll give you frogs. And he inundated the whole nation with frogs. They were everywhere. They were in their beds and in their chairs and in their ovens and in their kneading trough. It was everywhere, all over the place. Couldn't get rid of the frogs. So Pharaoh relents again and, and says, please, please, just do away with the frogs. Do away with the frogs. Everything's back to normal, changes his mind. And this goes on and on and on. They had gods that had faces and, and, and heads of insects, so God sent insects to plague the land. Um, they, raced, they worshiped the sun god, Ra, so God just made it all go dark for a day. <laughs> Every one of these acts of worship, these, these things, these acts of creation, these creations of God that they had come to worship, God says, I want you to know, it's not the creation, it's the creator, and I am more powerful than any of the gods you serve. And what God is making clear, not just to Moses and not just to the Israelites, but to the Egyptian nation, that there is no substitute and there is no other power than this God, I am. Because I am is the only God. See, here's one of the things that we do. When we have an area of powerlessness or when we have an area of hopelessness, what we do is we start to look for other sources of power, other sources of identity. We start looking for other things that will make us feel better about ourselves, a strength or something that will make us feel better for a moment so that we can deal with the weakness and the hopelessness and the powerlessness that we have. And what God is doing is he is eliminating all those other sources. Now, the Egyptians were honest enough to make idols and actually depict these gods that they worshipped. We are much more sophisticated. But we have our own set of false gods. Counterfeit gods. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, writes this. A counterfeit god is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such con a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy on it without a second thought. The old pagans were not fanciful when they depicted virtually everything as a god. They had sex gods, work gods, war gods, money gods, for the simple fact that anything can be a god that rules and serves as a deity in the heart of a person. Here's what I'd like you to do on your notepaper. I want you to write down a few that I thought of that might be a god for you. Money. Success or achievement, intellect, education, knowledge, 
beauty or attractiveness. Work, technology, relationships. See, anything that becomes such a part of your identity that you feel like you can't live without it is on the road if it has not already become a God to you. Recreation, travel. See, what are the things that you just, your mind just naturally goes to when left all by itself? What are the things that begin to occupy your thoughts? What are the things for which you are willing to give up some of your discretionary income and finances? What are the things that give you such a sense of purpose that if it was removed for your life, from your life, it would feel as if it wasn't worth living anymore? What is it that, that, that so gravitates you that your, your emotions go up and down like a roller coaster depending on how much that is being satisfied in your life? Because that is and has become or is on the way to becoming a God in your life. And what God is doing with the nation of Egypt and what he's offering to us is a better way. Because see, here's the thing. It's not because God is on an ego trip. It's not that God needs our worship to feel good about himself. See, what it is is God knows us. And God knows our only true source of strength and power. And he knows that whatever else we are putting our identity into, whatever else we are getting our sense of purpose from, whatever else has become the primary thing in our life, it will ultimately let us down. If attractiveness and beauty is your God, trust me, no matter how beautiful or good looking you might be today, give it another 20, 30 years. Because the wrinkles will start showing. And honestly, Botox does not make it look any better. <laughs> If your God is your career, your achievement, you're making it in this world, I will tell you, honestly, the day after you retire from that job, nobody in that workplace is going to think about you ever again. And all that you accomplished is just another blip on the radar long since past. See, that, that's what God wants us to understand. Whatever else it is that we are looking to as our source of strength and source of power, sense of identity, it is ultimately going to let us down. And he wants us to know there is only one source, true source, for our power and for our strength. And that's what he's trying to get across. And that's why he says to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. You've got to recognize your own powerlessness. You've got to recognize God's power to deliver you. And then there's a response. It's the third step. Turn your will and your life over to God. I have a friend who's in, in recovery, and he, and he said, you know, we've, I've, I've kind of shortened it because I'm a little bit slow, and I, if I keep it real simple, it makes it easier to remember. He said, I've simplified it down to this. I can't do it. God can. I think I'll let him. See, there's a point at which you got to let go. 
that all of your striving and all of your trying is not going to make it. All of these series of plagues is just proving one after another that whatever else you are putting your hope and your trust in is going to let you down. There is only one true source. And finally, after all of this back and forth, giving in, then changing your mind, all of that stuff finally gets to the point where there is one final plague. And this one is going to be final. This one, there's going to be no turning back from. There is no if or and. This, is, this one's going to be forever. This one's for good. This is no changing your mind after. Because now God is going to bring something terrible. And he's bringing justice and judgment. And in the same way that Pharaoh and his people have been throwing into the Nile River and killing all of the Hebrew babies, God says, now it's time for justice. I'm going to send my angel of death through the whole nation. And every firstborn will be killed. See, this one, you're not going to get to change your mind on. All up until now, God has given Pharaoh this opportunity to decide. It's always been left with him. It's always been given. And that's what God does. He always gives you the choice. See, he's not going to force himself on you. He's available. His power is there for you. Whatever it is that you think you need, he is what you need. But he always leaves the choice with you. I don't know if you've been reading this and following along. If you read it this week, you're going to be reading it next week. But Ken Davis has a great point on this. He talks about particularly the plague of frogs. Because what happens is that when Moses goes back after the plague of frogs has started, he goes to Pharaoh and he says, actually, he says, he says I, I give you the choice. You decide. You get to decide when you want the plague of frogs to end. The Bible's clear. The frogs are everywhere. Exodus 8, 3 spells it out. They will come into your palace and into your bedroom and into your bed, into the houses of your officials and your people and on your, in your ovens and your kneading troughs. Pharaoh can't even back his chariot out of the garage without killing a hundred frogs. His pizza is covered with frogs. If his home is anything like mine, his wife and oldest daughter have been standing on chairs screaming ever since the plague began. Frogs are everywhere. Yet, when Moses offers to get rid of them, what is Pharaoh's response? Anybody know? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Does he enjoy frog's legs? Is the sound of his shrieking daughter music to his ears? Is he tired of sleeping alone? What could possibly motivate the man to wait until tomorrow when he can resolve the problem today? Why spend another night with the frogs? If you look carefully, Pharaoh's behavior isn't really so unusual. I've been there myself. I've done that. I've hesitated to turn back to the God who loved me and wanted to take me away my guilt and pain. I'd grown comfortable with the frogs. Sometimes we're just too lazy to call the frog exterminator. It's easier to stay in a rut. We dream of following God's call, but we settle for a life of green-spotted mediocrity because it's more comfortable in the short run. We rationalize one more day of pleasure. We hope that if we ignore the problem, it might go away or spontaneously get better. These frogs never turn into princes. They multiply and come leaping into every area of life. They demand the energy that could be used for good, smelling up lives that were once fragrant with hope and vitality. And now gives, God gives Pharaoh a final choice. And Pharaoh says no. And so the angel of death comes. But even in that judgment, there is a note of grace. There's a note of redemption. God says to Moses, you tell my people 
to take a lamb, unblemished, unspotted, and kill that lamb. And that will be your meal. And you eat all of it. And, and if you have a neighbor who doesn't have a lamb of his own, then you invite him into your house. But you eat that unblemished lamb. And you take the blood from its slaughter and you smear that blood on the doorposts of your home. Because the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass you over. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. See, this is the note of grace. God provides a redeemer. God provides a redemption. And it's not just for good people. And it's not just for holy people or upright people. And it's not just for best behavior kind of people. It's for trusting people. And that's what it comes down to. This is that note of grace. That any home that the angel of death passes over where there is blood, if they have put themselves under that blood, their firstborn will be spared. And that to this day is what the Jewish people celebrate as Passover, where the angel of death passed over. And on the last night that Jesus spent with his disciples, he celebrated the Passover meal with them. Because it was a foreshadow of something that he was going to do some 1,500 years later. And at that table, Jesus took the bread from the meal and he said, This bread is my body broken for you. And this cup is my blood shed for you. That the ultimate Passover lamb Jesus Christ, without sin, without spot, without blemish, offered up his life as the ultimate sacrifice, not only for the forgiveness of your sin, but for the redemption of your life and for the power to change. In whatever area of weakness or hopelessness or powerlessness in your life, I want you to know Jesus didn't just give his life to forgive you. He came to set you free. And that's what Paul writes about later when he says this to the Colossian church. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.